Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January, not January, June the 17th, 2022. Um, one of the things I like doing about this show, we do a lot of interviews, is... Uh, Joining the dots, trying to figure out the world from the different interviews that I've done. Uh, I just wrote a piece about the connection between the crash of cryptocurrency, inflation, gun-toting white nationalists. And I thought a very interesting interview I did um, with Jennifer uh, Signor uh, on uh, Steve Bannon, America's uh, Rasputin. Uh, Bannon seems to be one of the most uh, powerful, enigmatic, and perhaps chilling figures in America right now. His war room, his podcast is incredibly influential in terms of what some people see as spreading racism, class war, various other kinds of populism, destruction of American democracy. But it's not just um, Bannon and my uh, conversation with uh, Jennifer Signor about Bannon that... uh, triggered my essay. also did a, an interesting conversation with Frank Smythe, an, ex, uh, an expert on uh, American guns. Um, and he told me uh, earlier this week, he told me the next three years could be the most violent. He expects, in fact, the next three years in American history to be the most violent since Reconstruction. Uh, Frank very much stresses the racial or racist elements in the American gun lobby to the right of the NRA, which he, interestingly enough, sees as fragmenting. Um, And I also did a conversation with Chris Leonard uh, about how today's inflationary crisis is likely to inflame our democratic crisis. All of this is, of course, bound up in many ways in the, the rise of Black Lives Matter uh, and in particular, uh, uh, Life Lives Matter was created by the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, in the heart of the Midwest. So I was particularly intrigued to come across a book called Imagining the Heartland, White Supremacy and the American Midwest, that rather than the South, uh, presents the Midwest as the most American and perhaps the most uh, chilling of heartlands in, in, in contemporary America. Uh, and uh, the co-author of the book, uh, Britt Halverson, is talking to me from Maine. She has uh, deep roots in the Midwest, but she teaches at Colby College in Maine. Uh, Britt, welcome. Rather long-winded introduction. Uh, I apologize. But this joining of the dots, what are you doing in imagining the heartland? Um in in terms of getting us to rethink the Midwest. The subtitle of the book is White Supremacy in the American Midwest. And that subtitle, I think, is as chilling as the essay I published on LitHub today. Well, I wrote this book with another anthropologist, Josh Reno. And what we're really trying to do is we're trying to look at some of the widespread public imagery of the Midwest. And we're asking a series of questions about it. Um, about how it can ultimately support white supremacist visions of the United States, of belonging um, in this country, uh, of specifically 
old historical white claims to land, to property. And so we kind of noticed um, what spurred us to write this book is that we noticed these images starting to publicly circulate with a lot more frequency and urgency leading up to the 2016 election, presidential election. And we started to ask a series of questions about what these images do. Um, and specifically what we found was that there is a very old and deep history of using images of the Midwest to prop up and to support and to make claims about whiteness and specifically about white claims to property and to land. Yeah, and that really resonated with me. Um, we all know um, the 1930s image of American Gothic and it I don't quite know how this happens, the uncanniness of the world. Uh, but we remember that remarkable photograph of Mark and Patricia McCloskey in St. Louis with their guns defending themselves against um, what they saw as the threat of the Black Lives Matter movement. Is that the kind of imagery that you've covered in your book? Well, certainly the Grant Wood uh, American Gothic painting, but um, that actually opens up an interesting historical fact, which is that that was part of a wave of image making about the Midwest United States that came about in the 1930s. And it involved painters like Grant Wood, but also Thomas, uh, John Stuart Curry and others. And what they did was they really helped invent a whole image of the Midwest that has still held sway in a lot of contemporary uh, kind of media representations and cultural references and even, you know, television programs. A lot of the um, the paintings influenced the set designers, for example, for um, The Wizard of Oz, and they used that imagery when they created that film. Um, so a lot of that imagery is something we've inherited, and it's sort of like the cultural backdrop to a lot of deep claims about small white farmers, white landowners, about imagining the Midwest as a predominantly rural region. And we argue those are really related to these durable imaginings of white virtue of the white um, sort of desirability of owning and cultivating land, of all the ways that that supports a sort of set of old arguments about um, white landowning at a really divisive time in American history. If you go back to the 1930s, this was when there was a great migration of African-Americans to northern cities. It was the end of the allotment period for Native Americans, which officially ended in 1934 of indigenous claims to land, recuperating land. Um, it was also a time of inc incredible economic inequality in the United States. Um, and it, that imagery, besides being a painting, a uh, painted depiction, it really erased all of that. It erased the existing racial diversity within Midwestern communities that had existed then and it existed for a very long time. Um, it erased all of the struggles of farmers, the ways that they were tied into global markets at that point in history and had been for uh, decades and decades. So it was very much an invented tradition. And so that's part of our, our goal with the book is to point out that it erases a lot and it's really based on a form of white nostalgia. And it also has a lot of insidious dimensions to it where it keeps getting reproduced over time. Many of our viewers and listeners, um, Britt, will be familiar with Thomas Frank's classic book now, now classic book, What's the Matter with Kansas? How Conservatives Won the Heart of America. Uh, Frank was actually on the show uh, a couple of years ago defending 
at least his version of populism. He has a new book out, The People Know. Um, some people have accused, if not Frank, certainly his ver- version of populism of being a some sort of, sort of maybe left-wing support for uh, racial identity. What do you make of progressive populists and their attempt to seize back a populism from the right, particularly when it comes to the Midwest? Well, I think a progressive populism potentially has the ability to address some of the erasures of a sort of more whitewashed version of history that can have these these more violent consequences to it. It would have to address forms of um, inequality in the way that the Midwest as a sort of space, just like other regions of the United States, are always already tied into a lot of the inequalities of global markets. And to really think about some of those inequalities as things that don't just singularly affect, for example, white landowners or white farmers, but affect people throughout the Midwest in different and rather uneven ways, depending on you know, how they're position, what kind of work they do, um, their own histories, family histories of migration and so forth. Um, and it would be a, a populism that wouldn't erase all of the complex forms of migration that have shaped the Midwest, just like any other region in the United States um, for you know well over two centuries. So I think that kind of populism would need to deal with all those erasures that I just described earlier. Some people might be watching this, uh, Britain, thinking, oh, I've just got another privileged white academic reminding us of white guilt and the crimes of racism. How, how would you respond to that? We've heard this so many times before. It's become rather boring, I, I think, anyway. Um, how do we move forward in terms of trying to perhaps not imagine the heartland, but reimagine the heartland? What, what, are the, what are the politics of getting beyond this? Well, I think it's important to recognize these portraits as things that are are invented and made and, and kind of constructed and to have a sort of wider reckoning with what we call in the book white supremacy. But what white supremacy really is, is a way of um, talking about a political, cultural and economic system that's had um, in which white people have had disproportionate access to wealth and resources. And so what we're doing by just pointing to these images and the sort of insidious work they do, even though they, they don't sometimes even seem to have much to do with whiteness at all, is one step in that process of a sort of long, unglamorous process of, of dismantling white supremacy and also of, of addressing forms of racism in the United States that can have more violent consequences. Um, so I think that's part of it. Of course, there also needs to be a lot of work to address um, intergenerational inequalities in terms of wealth um, and access to resources. We see that with the history of redlining and the fact that there's you know, a great degree of um, racial inequality on the basis of wealth. There's forms of like inequality and in access to medicine and health. So I think all of those are part of this much more multi-stranded process of sort of addressing these issues um, and also highlighting the stories I think a task for journalists, for example, is to highlight stories about the Midwest that don't fit these sort of well-worn, nostalgic, and really um, incorrect narratives about the Midwest. 
Uh, your book talks about the Wizard of Oz as a sort of classic, I guess, cultural representation of the Midwest. Um, does Hollywood need to change itself? Not that Hollywood is as powerful as it was. Well, I think so. I think that's part of a conversation that's happening in that industry as it is in many others about what does it mean to diversify images. And part of what we're pointing to is that images aren't, of course, reflections. They're these complex cultural representations of things. And oftentimes they're made up to support a variety of myths and they have a life sort of beyond their initial production. And that's definitely true with The Wizard of Oz. Um, so just from, from my own experience, I grew up in Michigan. And as I traveled and, and moved around, I became quite familiar with people telling me they already knew a lot about the Midwest, even if they'd never been to the Midwest or um, had any contact with really people from the Midwest. And I think that's part of what prompted us to write this book and think about these issues is that you know, there's a lot of these enduring images that really convince people they already know a place. And so I think part of the work of dismantling and questioning forms of race and racism in this country is also coming to terms with these ideas about places and the ways that race is, is not just about individual bodies, um, it's about these structures, but also about specific ways that places get racialized. And I think more and more scholars like, like us are trying to cast attention on um, how whiteness as a racial form is embedded in a variety of different um, things from movies and films to news reporting and um, to places. I think some people, if they were listening, particularly if they're fans of Steve Bannon's war room thing, here's just, an, as I said, here's just another American academic trying to make you a privileged academic teaching wealthy kids at a fancy private school trying to make ordinary white people feel guilty about themselves. That may be one of the reasons why Bannon is so successful. Uh, my essay suggests that America is perhaps already involved at a low level civil war. It seems as if the culture war these days of people like yourselves on the left and Bannon on the right is leading America not to fixing this stuff, but actually uh, to fight this stuff out on the streets. Are you fearful of that? Do you think that America uh, might be on the verge of civil war over some of these issues? I am fearful of how uh, people who have positions of power and who are, you know, relative elites, white elites themselves are using these images to fan the flames of um, white nationalists with more violent intentions. And I think part of the, the, um, the work that we're doing in this book is also trying to point to how these ideas that sometimes feel very violent, white nationalists and white hate groups, white power groups um, today are actually these sorts of nostalgic constructions um, that rely a lot on the Midwest and rely a lot on pastoral agrarian imagery of the Midwest to sort of create a narrative of a bygone past that's worthy of protecting. And are you suggesting though, that there's some plot here that there are a group of whites with cultural or political or economic power who are doing this on purpose? Or is there something subconscious about it? 
Well, I don't know that I would say that there is a, a plot per se, or a, I think a conspiracy, because that that's very much part of the far right uh, narrative about what's happening in the world today and has its own racializing dimensions and very, I think, anti-Semitic dimensions to it. Um, but I would say rather that it's part of the cultural, economic and political system that we're in. And I think that there is a sort of much deeper way that claims of whiteness, you know, scholars as far back as W.E.B. Du Bois were pointing out that whiteness was not just simply a racial claim, but also Du Bois called it a wage, you know, form of kind of social capital that people would would latch onto. And people also look in the vacuum of explanations for inequality and feelings of powerlessness for explanations. And you know, there are people supplying those explanations and, and racializing them. One of the big headlines today is the January 6th hearings, which suggest that the mob, the insurrectionary mob, would have probably hung Mike Pence had they found him. Mike Pence is coming out of this actually looking reasonably good. Mike Pence seems to me to be the sort of the quintessential white conservative Midwestern politician, man with power. Does that suggest that the white establishment in the Midwest is actually a little bit more complex than some people think? Well, I'm not a political scientist, but I would say that it is. You are dealing with politics. I mean, this is, this is, yeah, work is, is highly political. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. No, I would say the political establishment in the Midwest is just as complex and varied as any other region. Um, and there are, you know, of course, like Indiana has a particular kind of political history where Mike Pence is from, but there are, you know, histories of um, unionizing and political mobilization in parts of the Midwest, like Michigan, certainly, that I'm very deeply familiar with, um, where there's been a longstanding sort of very um, staunchly Democrat-leaning um, area of, of kind of political organization that supports, you know, a different kind of politics, but that's also very racialized white. So I would say that diversity is, is there just as it is in any other region. We did, uh, you're, you're talking to me from, from Maine, uh, Britt, and I did a show last week with the Maine politician, young woman, Chloe Maximin, who argues that the Democrats need to start listening to rural America. Of course, Maine is not the Midwest, but she has a new book out, Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It. Do you think this kind of argument is as, as relevant in the Midwest as it is in a state like Maine? Oh, certainly. I mean, I think um, I, just to compare, you know, Maine and Michigan, there are rural regions in each state. On the whole, Maine is a more rural state than Michigan, certainly, and Michigan has far greater population overall. But I think those efforts of outreach to rural populations are incredibly important. Um, and I think they speak to something more generally about feeling left out of a political process, a mm -hmm. cultural moment, feeling ignored. Um, and I think in, like I said earlier, I think in the vacuum of a feeling of participation in something, a feeling of being bound in and having a say in a political process, people turn to explanations, turn to theories about the world to explain why it is the way it is. And especially if the seats of power feel incredibly distant and disconnected from their lives, they turn, that's from a, an anthropological point of view, thinking about the cultural forces at play, 
I think that's what I would point to. And that's why reaching out to rural voters is incredibly important. How much is the physical intermingling political organization the key to fixing this stuff? Um, Michael Lind was on the show last year, another fairly influential political thinker, populist, sort of, I guess, in a way, in the Thomas Frank camp. Uh, he has a new book out, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. Um, and I think his argument is that both whites and non-whites need to form unions and address the deeper structural issues in American capitalism, which you're talking about. Would you agree with Lynn? I mean, I'm, I, you, you obviously know a million times more about the Midwest than me. Is one of the issues that uh, whites and non-whites, they physically don't see each other? Are, are many of the, the small towns, are they essentially segregated? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the history of redlining has left a deep impact everywhere in the United States and produced, you know, geographically segregated communities that even in the absence of that official redlining, keep on doing that work of geographic segregation. And that's true within school systems, too, as a result of that. Um, but in addition to that, I think I would point to the sort of much deeper history of some of these issues in the ways that um, you know, the, that, that production of um, a sense of separation in terms of work and jobs and livelihoods also came about through the, the segregation of unions, you know. So in the mm -hmm. early 20th century, we know from like The Color of Law, um, Rothstein's great book from several years back, um, and many other sources that, that labor unions were, were deeply racially segregated. And so there wasn't a lot of coordination across racial lines to address some of those inequalities in terms of um, work and wages. And, and in fact, race was used as a catalyst to try to draw harder boundaries around who was most deserving of some of the higher wages. So Brett, I know you're also a scholar of religion as, as well as anthropology and a scholar of the Midwest. Is the challenge and the opportunity rethinking all these intermediary institutions, whether it's unions or churches or schools, everything needs to be essentially desegregated, either formally or informally. Is that your argument? I think that's right. I think that's part of a much broader cultural process. And there's a lot of conversations really taking shape amongst, you know, um, people who are religious leaders in the United States in terms of Christianity's complicity in some of these histories of white nationalism and also the more broader global context of colonization and imperialism, you know, because Christianity was in many ways part of these disciplining forces that was trying to take land away from people who, um, you know, were deemed not quite, uh, quote, civilized enough in the late 19th century to be um, shepherding or stewarding their own land and cultivating it. And so that set up many of these sort of white um, minority governments in many different parts of the world where there was what was territorial colonialism. So I think it's important to kind of look at, you know, the, the deep structures that are in place, not just in terms of, um, you know, the legal or, or kind of um, kind of political, most obvious forms, um, but to look at those things that prop them up sort of behind the scenes more implicitly. And that's part of what has motivated our book, certainly. All this, though, is, is pretty academic. I mean, are you calling for the fundamental restructuring of capitalism? That doesn't seem very likely. <laughs> 
Well, certainly maybe not in this moment, but I think that there's there's steps that could be taken. And I think part of, um, I think any system, what I, what I often think of is it's not an all or nothing uh, kind of initiative. It's not demolish, you know, although sometimes abolishing is important, um, but there's also ways of reforming systems. And so I think that there are ways to both sort of address some of those problems, abolish and rebuild and reimagine. But the conversations like that you and I are having right now and conversations that people are having all across the United States are part of those initiatives. You know, you have to think it to do it, to rebuild it. You have to have conversations. You have to start to imagine what the alternatives look like. So I think it's really important to have these conversations. They're not just um, mindless or, um, or aimless, you know, on their own. They're really an important part of this process. Brenda, earlier this week, I did a conversation with Juan Gonzalez. Um, he's a very prominent uh, Latin American uh, uh, writer, journalist. His book, Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America. Um, it's been very influential. It's come out. It's been out in several editions. Uh, the Latino population, of course, is the the third piece in this puzzle of whites and African-Americans, how do they play out in the Midwest? I'm not that knowledgeable about the racial makeup of the Midwest, but is there a strong Latino representation? And does that add opportunity to rethinking, um, reimagining the Midwest, as you argue in your book? Absolutely. I would recommend to people listening a fantastic book by Suji Vega called Latino Heartland, which um, focuses a lot on Indiana, but um, includes a sort of much deeper history of Latinx um, migration to parts of the Midwest and specifically the longstanding role of um, Latinx Midwesterners in shaping um, life in Indiana. But also our book, when you put that next to that one, really shows how those contributions were so vast and varied and consistent over time that in many ways, they actually took a lot of effort to erase. So um, there's a deep and varied histories in all the different states of, of the Midwest about Latinx migration. Um, there's work by Nabil Abraham and Andrew Shryak, two other anthropologists that focuses on migrations from parts of the Middle East, such as Syria and Lebanon in the early 20th century to work in, in Ford Motor Company plants. Um, and then the multiple sort of different forms of migration that have shaped parts of metropolitan Detroit, like the Dearborn area, where there's the world's um, largest uh, population outside the Middle East of Middle Eastern descent. So all of these things point to you know, details that get left out of popular representations of the Midwest. But that are absolutely central to reimagining it as a region, to sort of reclaiming those histories that have long been a part of the region and, and its own racial diversity. Good suggestions, Britt. Finally, uh, as I said, uh, your new book you've co-authored uh, with Joshua Reno, uh, why, uh, Imagining the Heartland, White Supremacy in the American Midwest. It's a University of California book, very interesting theme and thesis and argument, very well presented by you in the book and today. What else would you suggest in addition to people reading your new book? You gave us some other uh, academic, more academic books on 
Latin American identity in the Midwest. Anything for fun, Britt? Do you have any fun? <laughs> um, you know, read about race and racism. I have a lot of fun. Um, but I, I think the one book I, well, I'll mention two books that have been really interesting that I've read fairly recently. Um, one is about race and racism in the United States, but it's an absolutely phenomenal work. Um, and I, it's actually was first published in 1979 by the novelist Octavia Butler. Um, and it's her novel Kindred. And I just recently finally read it. Um, and it, it's uh, sort of moving, difficult, and powerful. It's about time travel, about a Black woman in the late 1970s who um, gets caught up in time travel back to the time of slavery in Maryland um, in the early 1810s, and also her white husband does. And that's all about them being racialized to the expectations of the time. But I think what's even more interesting to me is it raises questions about what does it mean to relate to the past? And when you really engage with the past and what the past is, um, how can you not but be changed by it? So I found it really a fascinating and really moving book. Um, the other book that I guess I would mention is um, I read a book by an anthropologist, Natasha Scholl, and it's called Addiction by Design. And it's about actually casino gambling in Las Vegas, a very different topic. But it's fascinating because it focuses on all the ways that algorithms have gotten woven into machines, including you know, our cell phones, the internet, and so forth, but also how they can shape environments that compel us to engage with certain parts of life in very specific ways. So she talks a lot about how people machine gamble in Las Vegas and they kind of zone out. So it's similar to scrolling. You know, what are those, those technological relationships that we have in our own everyday life and how do they shape what we come to understand about ourselves?